So today's message um, is from Mark, but we're going to be doing something a little bit different today. Instead of reading from uh, the text, um, we're going to read uh, the Apostles' Creed. So if you're able, if you wouldn't mind standing up and uh, joining me in reciting uh, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Y'all uh, can be seated. Thank you. Good morning. Um, us reading the Apostles' Creed will make a little bit more sense as we move along in this message. Um, part of the reason why uh, reading that is the difficulty in, in interpreting Mark chapter 13. It's actually a very, very challenging text. Uh, if you wanted to look at some parallel passages, you can look at Matthew 24 and Luke 21. Um, but we, we find that if you're looking at what biblical scholars have written on this subject matter, on this particular chapter, they, they vary widely on their interpretations of this text. And there's quite a bit of debate as to what this chapter means. So we're going to approach it as best as we can with a fair dose of humility as we do this. Um, we're going to keep in mind what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Let's pray. God, we are entering into this text, which is challenging for us. And God, we know that your word is infallible, but the interpreters of your word are fallible people. So we ask God for that dose of humility, that dose of insight and wisdom as we approach this. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, whenever we're talking about passages dealing with prophecy or passages dealing with eschatology, which is the study of end times, um, they do sometimes uh, present to us a challenge, uh, a difficulty in interpreting these texts. And many times, unfortunately, we let the sociology or the culture um, dictate how we interpret theology, and that's a huge challenge uh, for us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, in that we need to let the theology dictate our culture. We need to let our theology dictate our society and our sociology and have that shape that for us. If we don't do that, if we don't let the theology speak into those things, then it's an evidence that our theology is weak and that the study of God cannot stand on its own, that we need these other ways of study to bolster that. 
And if that's the case, then why even bother with studying about God if God is subservient to culture? Our theology must shape our culture, otherwise it's, it's just not worth living according to that theology. So many scholars uh, who have these varying opinions as to what this text means uh, are much, much brighter than I am. Um, when it comes to theology, not when it comes to food, I think I can probably hold my own there. But what makes me think that I'm right in my interpretation when they are so much brighter and more studied up and know all these different things? So I, I, I actually don't think that I am better at the interpretation. And so we all need to be really careful when interpreting the scriptures, and and we also have to keep in mind what is being disagreed upon. Is the disagreement over these major issues, or is it over minor issues? And if we disagree over minor issues, what we would call as an open-handed issue, that, you know, you can take that away, it's not a big deal, and, and it's okay, then it's not a big deal. But if it's a major issue, if it's a close-handed issue, then that's something to take a stand on, which is why we did read the Apostles' Creed. Those are major essential issues there, theological issues. And so we look at these essential issues of our faith, such as mentioned by the Apostles' Creed, and then we look at what are non-essentials, what are the the open-handed minor issues of theology, and there are many, many of those things. There are a ton of non-essential issues. I'll just bring about a couple of them. And some of these things might cause some conflict within yourself too because you're you're thinking they are a major issue when it's actually not. So Arminianism versus Calvinism. If you are an extreme Calvinist or an Arminianist, you will think that it's a major issue, but it's really not. It's a minor issue. It was not brought up in the Apostles' Creed. It's not going to be brought up in the Nicene Creed or any of the creeds of the early church. If we talk about church polity or church governance, those are minor issues. You know, pastor-led versus elder-led versus congregationally-led, it's, those are minor issues. When we're talking about things like eschatology, the study of the end times, minor issues. It's not listed on any of those creeds, except for the return of Christ, But in terms of when and how, those aren't major issues. So the Apostles' Creed is a pretty standard creed to historical Christianity, which is why we we read that. So we need to be really careful not to swing too far in extremes when we are interpreting scriptures. One extreme is where people are just really spongy with their theology, and they personalize everything about the Bible, and you'll hear things like, you know, well, this means this to me. And you'll hear that a lot in small groups, right? You'll get in a small group and then your people will be talking about, well, this means to me. And you personalize all this stuff. And and it's really great to, to personalize that revelation from the Bible. But one problem with that is that what this means to me theology is all based on personal preference so that our personal interpretation is just as valid as another person's personal interpretation. But then what if the two interpretations actually contradict one another? And so this validating of everyone's personal interpretation breeds chaos. It breeds a theological chaos. Not everyone's interpretation is equally accurate. 
because not all interpretations are based off of church history or biblical history or archaeology or what's actually true. So how does it match up with the rest of the Bible? Is it historically accurate? Is what is being read a metaphor or is it to be interpreted as literal? And there are so many questions involved within interpretation. So then we fall back on what's essential. So this dis disagreement along the lines of end times that's a non-essential. The church polity issue is a non-essential. There's a bunch of non-essential issues that we have divided over, which we don't really need to do that. And then there's the other extreme, when people are too dogmatic with their theology, and that's equally as dangerous as being really spongy, where everyone's interpretation is just as accurate. And we need to be careful not to hold either one of those extreme postures the posture of dog dogmatism where we become so dependent on someone telling us what the scriptures mean. And then we become too reliant on that someone to interpret for us what the Bible means. And that is not good. And so sure, there are teachers, there are pastors who have been given the, the gift of teaching, but there are over a dozen interpretations, scholarly interpretations, for the, Mark chapter 13. And all of those people would claim that they love Jesus. That they, they have valid reasons to believe what they believe. They are very well read. And so who's right? Me. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm imperfect. I'm imperfect and I'm not that arrogant to think that I've got it all right when interpreting the Bible in Mark 13. And there are many people who have dedicated many more hours than I have in studying this chapter than I have. They've written books on this stuff. They are well-respected biblical scholars. And, and, and we can't be so narrow-minded in the non-essentials. So what would that sound like regarding Mark 13? It would be like if someone came up here and they said, there's only one way to interpret Mark 13. I know that there are 15 other ways out there that have been written by biblical scholars, but this is the one that is the right. That's dogmatism. That's just on a non-essential. It's not, it doesn't matter. And so we have this theological chaos and we have this theological dogmatism in the non-essentials, in these open-handed issues, and that's not a good thing. We have to keep in mind that, yes, the Word of God is infallible, but we as interpreters of the Word of God, we are fallible. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. You know, right now things are dim. We don't have the full picture. But then when we are in face to face with God, it'll all make sense. And I think when we get to that time, in regards to end times and prophecy and those things, we're going to figure out like, whoa, I was off on that one. I, I, I didn't get that one right. And so when we come up with timelines, we start assigning events to specific things in the Bible. You won't hear this from me in terms of arguing for those things or, or attempting to place things on events or timelines in the Bible with current events. And it's just not going to come through me. I, I don't have that confidence to, to do that. And what I do is I will go back to the scripture and what speaks to me really clearly in Mark 13 is verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. 
not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. That's good enough for me. I don't have to do the prediction stuff. I don't have to assign events to what's happening in the event, uh, to, the, to the Bible. I don't have to guess any of that stuff because no one knows. And I know people like playing the prediction game with Jesus Christ's return when he himself didn't even know. He says it. The essential part of it is, I know he is returning. He will come to judge the living and the, the dead. But how and when? I do have my interpretations. I do have my ideas that are not chaotic and they are not dogmatic. But if anyone asks me when, I will say the Bible says no one knows. So when Jesus, God incarnate, first came to the world a couple thousand years ago, so few people got the arrival of Jesus right. People who were supposed to be the scriptural scholars of the day, many of them got this wrong, and all the prophecies were before them in God's word, but so many of them just got it flat wrong. And they kept looking for a king. But their opinions on what a king was to look like were all wrong. They, they weren't, there weren't many who recognized Jesus as the Christ when he arrived. Many thought that he'd arrive differently. Very few people thought that he'd arrive so humbly. You know, born in a manger? A king? And it wasn't until Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension do we get this deeper, clearer picture, understanding of all the messianic prophecies of Jesus, which are over 300 of them in the Old Testament that have been fulfilled. And from that, we know that hindsight is 2020, and we can look back to it and see that what happened. And we know now that we have this biblical history, and, and from history, we can interpret what the prophets meant. But many of the people reading the scriptures then didn't interpret the scriptures correctly. So do we think we know the future of the Bible if those guys didn't know their present future? Are, are we smarter? Are, have we just become better at interpreting Scripture? Are we, are we different from them in getting some of these things wrong? I don't think we are. But when the actual prophetical events do happen, we'll see it more clearly. It'll make more sense. And we'll get a lot of these answers when Jesus returns. And we'll probably find out that we were off with what we thought. That we were given his word to live it out. To give us clarity on how to live. It's not meant to be a mystery novel, even though there are many parts of it that are mysterious. It's to be lived out practically. The Bible is not a theoretical book. It's not just to be thought about or stuck in academia. The, the intellectual is extremely important to Christianity. That's why you'll find that the first universities of our nation were founded by Christians. But, but the word is not just to be studied. It is to be practically lived out. Deuteronomy 29.29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. When the disciples asked the question in Mark chapter 13, verse 4, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And you'll notice how Jesus answered. He answers in a very practical way. And look at this. In verse 5, he says, See that no one leads you astray. 
There's no prophetical stuff. There's no eschatological stuff there, right? He says, don't let them lead you astray. And then you look at verses 9, 23, and 33. It says, be on your guard. Very practical. Verses 33, 35, and 37 say, stay awake. There are these really practical applications as to what we need to do. And it's easy to see what we want to see when reading the Bible, to look for things that back up what we want the Bible to say, to back up our ideology, to back up our politics, to back up our sociology. But what does God want us to see? What does it really say? And so we need to study it with humility and carefully, with persistence, and with really hard work. Just like anything that's worthwhile, we need to put the work in. And Jesus said in verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. God's words are worthy to be studied with great care, humility, and diligence. And we can take refuge in the word of God. So with that as a background, we now enter into chapter 13, where we don't don't have time to go through the whole chapter. We're going to break it up uh, into several studies. We're just going to look at verses 1 through 4 today. So here's verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. The temple was an incredible, magnificent structure. It was built by Herod the Great, arguably the greatest builder of the ancient world. Many of his structures remain standing today, 2,000 years later. I mean, not in entirety, but parts of it. And he was credited with some really incredible feats of architecture and construction. We'll take a few, uh, uh, we'll look at a few examples. Here's, here's one. It's in Caesarea Maritima. And this is in Israel today. You can see it, not, not how it looks right there, but uh, broken pieces of it. This is before quick dry cement. And this is before figuring out how cement would dry underwater. He's the one credited to figuring that out. He built a deep seawater harbor in a place that wasn't supposed to be able to have one. The currents are incredibly strong. There's no way that you're going to do this, and he figured out a way. That hippodrome that you see there, they have pieces of the wall still there, and you can kind of see some of the artwork that's there that they've redone. He used to pump seawater from the Mediterranean into that hippodrome and then have people... Re, redo, refight the battles out in, in the sea. So like ships would be in there and all water. And we get amazed when we put guys in helmets and shoulder pads and hit each other with a football on a field. Like that's just a ball. He put on full on ships and water in there and it's all, it's incredible what he was able to do. He was a fantastic engineer. He figured out how to supply fresh water to that city. So the Roman aqueducts are still standing there today. You can go there and see them. They're still there today. He figured out how to create these Roman aqueducts to feed into these fortresses in the middle of the Judean desert. So if you go there today, Masada, every military person in Israel has to march up to Masada. That's a requirement. That is still there. That, That fortress is still there. He created the Herodian. Herodian was a fortress that uh, from, where was Amos from? I forget the city he's from. Anyway, it's in that same, starts with a T. Shoot, I forgot. Tekoa. 
It's, in the, it's right in the mountain. You should be the teacher up here. It's right in the mountain. The fortress is built right into that mountain. How did you do that? And they're still trying to figure out like, how deep it goes. The archaeologists haven't figured that out yet, how, how to go in there without it all collapsing down and stuff. So they're still doing archaeological digs there. This is Herod the Great who created these fortification innovations to help the Roman military architecture for generations after to keep them in power. That's only a few. He's credited with so many. I just want to show you a few so that you get an idea as to the temple that he built because there was no building in the entire Roman Empire that matched the grandeur of the temple. And that was also Herod the Great. That's a replica, um, like a, a little one. They're like sugar cube size, those little bricks. And it's like a whole city built. And you can go to Israel today and kind of see this, this. They try to do it to scale with like little people and stuff. It's kind of cool. Um, I wanted to bring my G.I. Joe action figures and do that. But, um, but you, can, you can do that. And he built this for his Jewish subjects, not out of the goodness of his heart because it was a political move. He needed to get the Jews on his side to have peace in Jerusalem. And so he de decides, you know, he is really egotistical also. He wants to build like the biggest things and the greatest things. He wants to be known as the greatest builder and engineer. And so he does all of these things. But he does it for political reasons as well as his personal ambitions to build this magnificent structure. And this temple is second to none in the entire Roman Empire. So for the disciples to point out wonderful stones, wonderful buildings... They were. Verse 2, And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And so this is a really shocking statement coming from Jesus because look at this stuff. Look at what Herod the Great has done. Caesarea, Herodian, the temple, Masada. And so this is crazy. For Jesus to say this. Now to give us a better understanding of the grandeur of how amazing these structures are. Because I think it's really hard for us to go back 2,000 years and place us there. Let me just show you one more thing. There's this stone within the western wall. And the western wall is one of the few remaining pieces of the temple. The original temple that are still there. And so the Western Wall, also known as the Wailing Wall, you guys are familiar with it, people going there to pray all the time. And, and this stone is 570 tons, one stone. Where the blue arrow is pointing, you see the people? That one stone. Now to give you a better idea what 570 tons is, you know the Salesforce Tower that's being built right now? The cranes that are on there that are building the Salesforce Tower? The maximum lifting capacity of a Salesforce tower crane is 19.8 tons. This is 570 tons. It will take 29 Salesforce tower cranes to lift this thing. 29. Are you getting a better idea of how incredible this structure is? How magnificent this structure is? This is a building of splendor. It is a marvelous building. It is the center of Judaism. This is where the Jews felt that God's glory was, where they could 
gather around it and encounter God. And, and Jesus said that this is going to be destroyed. Now the amazing thing isn't just the physical destruction of the temple. It's also what it meant spiritually. It'd be one thing if a magnificent structure just topples, but that can happen in an earthquake. So that's not like that incredible. They've seen destructions of cities many times by earthquakes in the Middle East. But the incredible thing is the destruction spiritually. See, God established his presence among the people in the Exodus, in the Ark of the Covenant. And so within the Ark of the Covenant, they were marching throughout the wilderness all those decades, believing that the presence of God was within the Ark of the Covenant. And when Jerusalem was erected and the city of David was built under King David, they put the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies of the Temple. And so that is the core of everything they knew of God's revelation. King David did not build the temple. King Solomon built that temple. And so King Solomon built that temple. And then in that temple, they placed that Ark of the Covenant and it housed the holy symbolic presence of God. That was where God was known to them. That was where God's glory was present for them. That's where the Jews encountered God. So when Jesus said, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down is a shocking statement, not just physically, because an earthquake can knock it down, but spiritually. Because that is where the prophet Isaiah said that the Lord was sitting upon his throne high and lifted up and the train of this robe filled the temple. That's the temple. So are you saying it's going to knock God out? That his presence is no longer going to be here? The very temple where in Luke chapter 2 this happened in verse 25, starting in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. It was where God showed up. That's where Jesus showed up. This is where Simeon felt like he could die now. And then as Jesus grew up and, and he was filled with wisdom, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, he was sitting there and the feast ended and people started going back home. Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents are looking for him, but they can't find him. And after three days of looking for Jesus, they finally find him in the temple. And Mary was, was pretty upset. And, and Jesus said to them, and said to him in Luke 22, verse 49, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? His father's house. Right? But the, the temple that he entered in, in Mark 11, where he found that there, it, what was to be a, a house of prayer was turned into a den of robbers. And those things happened in the temple. And they had great spiritual significance, which is why he's so upset. And now it's going to be destroyed. Verse 3 of chapter 13. 
And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately. So looking from the Mount of Olives, here's a slide here. This is take, taken from the Mount of Olives. Looking down, you'll see a, 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 a valley of green. That's the Kidron Valley. You'll see before that a Jewish cemetery. That's where Orthodox Jews have buried their, their dead. Right across the way is the wall of the city of Jerusalem. And right before that is a cemetery of Muslims that they've built there because they know that the dead are considered unclean. And so Messiah was, Messiah is prophesied to walk through that side of the wall. So Muslims believe, hey, if we put the dead there, then Messiah can never come back because he can't enter through this dirtiness, through, through the dead. But um, you just have to, like, move it. So then I don't, I don't get the logic. But anyway, that's there. The Dome of the Rock is there. The temple's left of that, and part of the temple exceeds over to where the Dome of the Rock is. This is the viewpoint that Jesus is talking from, and the disciples are, that are there, the Mount of Olives, still there. Verse 4, tell us when all these things will be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. But it's funny, but they didn't ask why. Right? They ask when, but they don't ask why. Why would it be destroyed? Why would the temple, God's presence, God's glory, why would it be destroyed? Well, it's not needed anymore. Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, it says, I, Jesus, tell you something greater than the temple is here. What? How could something greater than God's presence be here? Well, God personified is probably a better thing. And so the destruction of the temple was a judgment to their spiritual blindness of the people and it was because of the temple that they were blind. It made them into people who were really greedy. It made them turn this place into a den of robbers and not a house of prayer. It was not a fruitful house. It was a place of an empty religion. And rather than acknowledging what they had turned it into and repenting of it, they wanted to kill Jesus. Jesus, who was the ultimate sacrifice, and no future sacrifices will be needed after him. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So with Jesus' sacrifice, there was no longer a need for the temple because access to God was open through Jesus' death on the cross. See, that curtain in the temple was torn in two. We have a slide of this. If you could keep that up for a little bit. That purple curtain that you see there was a barrier to God and the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum of the temple. And that curtain was torn in two at Jesus' death on the cross, literally. Symbolically, it means something, which we'll get into a little bit later, but literally, that curtain ripped at Jesus' death. And so this curtain separated the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary inside the tabernacle, separating the Holy of Holies from the holy place. And this Holy of Holies was this sacred room that only the high priest could enter into once a year on the Day of Atonement. 
and he had to enter it with blood. And there was a bunch of other things that he had to do in terms of uh, a cleansing bath and, and what he had to wear and all these different things. He had to tie a rope around his ankle. He had to have a little bell because if it rang, then he was still alive. And if it didn't, they had to pull him out because he died. And he did this for the sins of people. He had to go with blood offering for the sins of himself and for the people. You could read this in Hebrews chapter 9. This curtain, this veil was made of fine linen. It was made of yarn. It had cherubim embroidered into it. It was 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, 4 inches thick. It was said that you can tie multiple horses to it and try to rip it and it wouldn't rip. It was that strong. And then that Jesus' death, it was just ripped in two. See, this veil was symbolic of what was between holy God and sinful man. And the holiness of God cannot be in the same presence as sin. It cannot tolerate sin. And anyone entering into the holy of holies other than the high priest would die. This curtain was torn into literally at the death of Jesus on the cross, as recorded by historians, Jewish historians Josephus. He was our high priest who entered that inner place behind the curtain. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It is because of Jesus. The gospel was free to go out to the nations. But these guys were distracted by the grandeur of the temple rather than the mission that was right before them. They were in awe of the temple more than they were of Jesus himself. They were more impressed by the buildings, the facades of religion, than they were of God himself. You see, it's only when our temples are torn down will we be delivered from our sins by Jesus. Our own temples. See, there are no special places to meet God. This this meeting place that we have here is we won't meet God here any more than we would meet him in the cafe the religious leaders couldn't see Jesus and they were the ones who were supposed to recognize him and without Jesus pointing the way the disciples would have missed him too and, and pointing out the buildings and the temples and saying like this stuff's going to fall see it's only when we come to the place where we realize there's nothing we can do to earn our way into the kingdom of God when we, when we think we can possibly be good enough to enter into the kingdom of God, when all the stuff we depend on, until they crumble like the temple, and we look to Jesus Christ, can we enter into the presence of God? That's the only time. And yet we, are, we have so many temples. There are some people who believe that they... They don't need God because there's nothing wrong with them, that their sin is not all that bad, that they're more good than they're bad, that they don't believe that their sin separates them from God. And yet, that very thinking is probably the very temple that needs to come down. It's separating you from God. 
it, it has become your crutch to keep you from God. It keeps you from repentance and believing in the gospel. And so this morning, if you're going to take away anything, it's to figure out what is the temple in your life that you are so reliant on and so dependent on and your crutches are, they're acting as your crutches. You admire it so much. You're saying it's so beautiful. It's so wonderful. And it could be your politics. It could be your ideology. It could be your value system. It could be some relationship. It could be materialism, money. It could be whatever it is. What has captured your attention so much that it keeps you from seeing God? Where you think that you see God in that certain thing when he's actually not there at all. And that needs to come down. That temple needs to come down. And you and I can't possibly do enough to be holy. We're just not. We are outside of that curtain. But we don't have to worry about that anymore. Jesus ripped it. He did it. So why did the disciples ask when? Why don't they ask why? This is why they ask when and not why. Because they feel that the end of the temple means the end of the age. Like the end of all of the world. That that's what that means. So why ask when? Because it doesn't matter. Because if that's the end, then it's the end. Because they cannot imagine a world without the temple. It's impossible. Because God's presence is there. So when Jesus said the temple is coming down, they automatically thought when. Because when that happens means it's the end of the world. But that didn't happen. It wasn't the end of the world. The temple was destroyed. But it wasn't the end of all things. It was simply a foreshadow of the destruction to come at the end of the age. And so the destruction of the temple happened in 70 AD. And that destruction at, at the end of the age, we are obviously not there yet. But both of those prophecies are within Mark chapter 13. And we'll take a look at this more closely next week and the weeks to come. But here's just a sneak peek of what's to come. Let's just look at verse 7. Because a lot of people who focus a lot on biblical prophecy and eschatology will look at this phrase and they will read this time and time again and point to, we're living in the last days. Be ready. I agree. We are in the last days and we're ready, but let's look at this. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Now, before 70 AD, there were wars and there were rumors of wars. Between 70 AD and today, there are, have been or are wars and rumors of wars. After today, there will be wars and rumors of wars. And so you see that verse 7 is separated by centuries. And what some people do is they look at all of this linearly when it's not. It's both. It addressed 70 AD and it addresses what's happening today. There have always been wars and rumors of wars. So what happened to the temple in 70 AD is a foreshadow of things to come. See, we can't be so dogmatic to say like that was that or the end of the age is coming or anything like that. And we can't be so spongy to say like, oh, what you say is right and what you say is right and everybody's right. 
See, Jesus provided info to the immediate context of the temple so that everyone would benefit from that point until the end of the age. And so he spoke directly to his disciples, and he speaks directly to us today and those in the future about what's to come. And so we must just keep the practical applications of these things about staying awake, staying on guard, and not being led astray. And so we watch, we wait, we hope, we pray, acknowledging Jesus as Savior, as we do not let people lead us astray, as we stay on guard, and we stay awake for his return. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we don't get caught up in all of the drama of people shouting from the rooftops about the apocalypse, but God, there's work for us to do before that time comes. And so may we be focused on the souls that need to be saved, that need to be able to see what you did in ripping that curtain in two. God, we are um, fallible people, and there are so many temples that have been erected in people's lives. And many of those temples are really, really good things, just like what Herod the Great built and just what Solomon built. But sometimes they have to come down even though they're so magnificent because they keep us from seeing you and acknowledging who you are. And so whatever that temple is, God, whether it's an ideology or a value or politics, um, relationships, things we place such adoration towards and admiration that it's blinded us to be able to see you. I pray, God, that those things do get torn down, that we are able to see you more clearly, and that we would be more about your mission than we would be about observing great temples. God, you're not about recognizing old relics, even though they're cool and neat, but you are a living God who is ushering us into eternity. And so, God, may we be diligent in studying your word and knowing it. In Jesus' name, amen.